Hello and welcome back to this conversation on the master metaphors of the Western world. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and I'm joined by uh, Reverend Dr. Gregory Schulz. Uh, and we are uh, working our way through Dr. Schulz's fantastic, incredibly enlightening, uh, and sometimes difficult list of the ten master metaphors of philosophy that uh, that uh, that are helpful to understand, to know where we are in the West and in the Western conversation. And today we take up uh, master metaphor uh, number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Kant's Immanuel Kant's ultimate principle for relationship from his groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. Uh, Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the conversation. Thanks, Pastor Miller. We had Berkeley's table last time. Uh, now we're moving on to Kant. So can you can you kind of catch us up where we are in history, in the timeline of things, um, and in the philosophical conversation? Well, sure. Thanks. Let's let's agree that this is just enough to annoy our listeners who are very serious about history. But um, it's going to have to be kind of rough and ready. So we stepped a couple metaphors ago into the modern period. Uh, we located the modern period smack dab on 1600 for its start and offered the thought that um, just nothing but nothing seems to be the same after 1600 as it was before. Um, for the sake of our understanding, Western culture, or perhaps how we have seriously lost the essence of Western culture, I think we need to track through what was happening in philosophy on the thought that Ideas have consequences, and we can can sort of map this thing um, happening from Descartes on. So we noticed with Rene Descartes at the start of modernity that he had, in effect, reduced God to a perfect idea that he found within his mind that assured him that somebody must have put that there and he could make his way out into the extramental world. Last time we talked, we looked at Barclay and considered... Uh, a section from his Principles of Human Knowledge in which Barclay played the Lockean game of also assuming that ideas are fundamentally in our heads, as Descartes was doing, but with the addition that bona fide ideas, ideas worth holding on to, um, must have a pedigree reaching back through the sensations to the extramental world. Barclay made very, very serious use of the God of the Bible for that, um, for instance, orbiting his uh, basic philosophy around that passage that St. Paul used in Acts 17, in God we live and move and have our being. Now, w- with our topic for today, as we take a look at Immanuel Kant, I'd recommend that we think about Kant as the poster professor for the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment project, I will say, is the almost inevitable continuation of this modern epoch. So things are getting farther away from the God of the Bible, and deliberately so. Um, Again, I realize there are all sorts of other ways to put this, but I'm going to say that the Enlightenment project is this. Put it into just about a bumper sticker. Let's see if life would be better if we acted as if the God of the Bible did not exist. (laughs) So um, what we've got in the Enlightenment thinkers is an effort to keep and even further what is good in Western culture, but uh, strictly speaking and as a matter of program, uh, you might almost say as a, as a uh, hell-bent effort to get the God 
of the Bible, Christ and, and all of the books of Scripture, out of the public conversation. Immanuel Kant uh, takes this project on, certainly for more complex motives, but he takes that project on, and we're going to see especially how he worked that out in terms of ethics or philosophical morality. Uh, is that um, so? The idea of ethics—we haven't really talked too much about ethics. We talked about metaphysics. Uh, we talked about um, ontology and epistemology uh, last time. Uh, we're, we're talking. We've been talking mostly about the the philosopher's attempt at determining, you know, how, how you know a thing, what's real, etc. But the, here on ethics, the conversation is: um, what should I do, or, or, or what is? Um, what drives good actions? I, I think, how, how would you define, I, I'm sure there's actually a technical definition for philosophical ethics. Um, sure. So let's see. First of all, I think it's worthwhile going back and forward in the terminology a bit. Um, philosophical morality would be the way our British neighbors across the Atlantic would talk about this to remind us that it has to do with some very careful and long-term historical thinking. Um, in the United States, we tend to refer to this as ethics because we think of ourselves as a practical roll-up-our-sleeves kind of folk, and, and we would prefer not to be worried with the theory or the history of stuff. So for us, it tends to get to be more a matter of following professional ethics or business ethics or um, legal minimum requirements. So um, I think it's worthwhile sometimes to grab the term ethos from the ancient Greeks when they talked about what we call ethics as being uh, people's whole way of looking at things, their entire disposition toward how to live together. But for what it's worth, with my uh, university classes, and I get to teach um, a lot of ethics and Christian ethics and bioethics courses, I think we want to construe it as, as orbiting around a fundamental question. This is going to sound a little um, Schaeferian, but the question is how then – should we live together as human beings? So, for short, how then should we live? And I'd, I'd emphasize the we in there to start with. Um, I want to resist the um, solo philosophy of Rene Descartes, which is kind of a hallmark of modernity in its own way, and point out that we're in this together and we're working on this together. And then the other thing is you want to catch that word should – or you want to use the word ought, because ethics then is a normative discipline or a, a normative science that, um, at least up until very recently, has always in the West been looking for the norm or the standard of the good or, or words to that effect in order to understand together how we ought to lead a proper, full human life in relation to each other. It uh, should is looking forward too. It's in other words, I'm I've got to do something tomorrow, uh, and I've got to choose this way or that. What what should it be? As opposed to kind of looking back and saying, "Well, I did this, so now I'm going to figure out how to make that right or wrong." Something like this, so that if it, if eth if ethics is this way, then it can be um, not only normative but also instructive. I'm gonna I can I can learn from ethics uh, what is good and right uh, rather than trying to shape the ethics around what I'm doing. Well, that's very helpful. Um, the, the notion that there is an expectation of what we should do is the absolutely indispensable part of this, right? So um, if 
I would think if people from the the uh, new profession of anthropology or in cultural studies, usually done as um, outgrowths of anthropology departments, if they were doing this, they'd be describing how people have lived or currently do live in certain demographics and certain geographical or historical places. Uh, but that's not what we're up to in philosophy. We really do want to talk together about how should we live, how ought we to live, um, what's the norm, and and uh, how can we how can we know universally, objectively, intelligibly what it means to be human beings together? Now you you um, in a ha- very handy handout uh, that we'll make available on our um, website. What does this mean? dot org where we will post this under the category master metaphors. Uh, we'll have this there. Um, that you 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 say that when Kant is putting together his categorical imperative. That he has f- four things that this law, the, the this uh, uh, moral law that he wants to have, uh, must do. Uh, first, uh, it must be it must be abstract from everything imperial, empirical. That is, it can't be experienced based. Second, it can make no reference to the consequence of action. So there's no hypothetical. Third, it has to be independent of inclinations. Feelings and uh, intuitions have no moral worth. And four, it has to be capable of uh, aspiring respect for all human beings or rational persons, etc. So that Kant sets out and he's going to make those kind of the the groundworks for the law that he's going to develop. Now, what um, can you point out kind of some important points from that and why this is Kant's uh, uh, category or what are his rules that he has, and maybe third, um, what's missing? In other words, what is Kant not calculating in his uh, reasons for developing his law? Yeah, so there's some nice questions. So, um, first of all, uh, I think it would be good to mention that those four points that um, I wrote down and that that you and I've been talking about are actually from Norm Melchert's book, The Great Conversation. So that's a, a single-volume textbook that um, I think you and I are both uh, pretty enthusiastic about for its blend of primary sources and explanation of the philosophical thinking. Um, so we want to thank Melchert for that. So Melchert is um, working from a pretty wide body of writing by Kant. So, for instance, um, it actually is the case that Immanuel Kant, um, who died in 1804, so you could think of him as an 18th century philosopher, basically. Um, Immanuel Kant was a very popular and beloved philosophy professor in his town. I think that bears repeating. A very popular <laughs> and beloved <laughs> philosophy professor. I, I, make th- my, I make my students write that down three Look, times. I, I think if you had the hairstyle with him, with the curly white hair like that... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It would be so, helpful. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so the mention that the categorical imperative that Kant is working out should be independent of inclinations. Um, in some regular lectures on anthropology or understanding the human being that Kant did for the community uh, in his uh, university town of Königsberg, he actually said that um, human emotions are pathological. In other words, that the only thing that they really do is they get in the way of clear thinking. Um, for another discussion, I've got some serious disagreements with that, but um, this is all uh, distilled from the way Kant wrote at great, great, great length 
elsewhere um, about his thinking. So the notion of categorical, to catch your second question, is one that um, I found with my undergrads, I really have to pause and debrief them on. So we have kind of grown up with hearing more than one politician saying that they categorically deny having done something. Um, and to be categorical means just the opposite of what those politicians were saying. <laughs> so to be categorical means no fingers crossed behind your back, no tricky qualifications, um, no obvious concerns left unsaid. It means to be transparent and not hold back. The imperative part is that normative business we were talking about a few minutes ago. And then to ask just, um, you know, on kind of a suspicion, given the Enlightenment project, what is Kant deliberately not going to do? And I think that the very clear answer is that Immanuel Kant, as part of the Enlightenment project, to act and write and think as if the God of the Bible did not exist, is trying to create a way to have the golden rule from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 without Jesus. So, in other words, he wants to produce an exsanguinated or a bled-out version of the golden rule um, in keeping with the Enlightenment project. And the question, in part, is, well, how are you going to try to pull that off? And then the more looming question, the more vital ethical question is, but does that work? Hmm. Now, this is um, something that I've noticed. I mentioned to you before we were recording that it seems like every time you have two or more atheists gathered together, their whole endeavor is around this question, um, can we be good uh, without God? In fact, I think every time I see an atheist essay contest, that's what it is. Uh, write an essay about how you can be good without God. There's a, a the Denver Area Atheist Club, which I've uh, attended a couple of times. They um, they started their own not-for-profit um, organization where they collect donations and give it to secular charities. Um, so, so they're obsessed with this idea of being good apart from God. And, and so it seems like when, when you say that here, here Kant is going to say, how can we, if instead of saying it's God's will that we love our neighbor, if you take out God, how can you say we love our neighbor or how, how should we treat our neighbor? So that's his, at least when it comes to this question, the categorical imperative, that is the question that he's trying to answer. Do I, do I have that right? That's a rather nice way to put it. I think it will help us to introduce um, a Lutheran distinction for this question right at the outset, too. So there would be the question about being good in relation to God, and then there's the question about being good on the horizontal in relation to your fellow human being. Our um, intuition, <laughs> contra Kant on that one, but our intuition <laughs> or our studied thought, uh, more to the point, would be that without the vertical robustly in place, in other words, being good and righteous in terms of what God wants us to be thinking or doing or not thinking or doing, um, that's going to affect how we behave on the horizontal. And it may also be that at the same time that it's easier for an atheist in the 21st century West to say that the philosophical atheist is being as good a person as the church person is, uh, it's quite possible, of course, that another reason that sounds more plausible is our notion of good has been greatly degraded. Hmm. Um, so, w you know, we'd want to keep an eye on that. Right. The, the old Lutheran said that 
uh, we can, by the power that remains in us after the fall, um, begin to do the external works of the law. But those are um, also by coercion. And it seems like Kant wants to take any sort of coercive element out of the law, um, you know, uh, or reward so that um, the categorical imperative, you're not going to do because uh, you get rewarded if you keep it or if you get you because you get punished with you don't keep it that it is um it is a thing unto itself it's um oh i should find the quote where he's talking about that but but that the law itself would present itself as right and uh, we're duty bound to keep it completely apart from any sort of um uh re- reward or punishment yeah, that's great. And that's, of course, exactly what he wants to do. So I'd be kind of anxious to introduce his basic three ways of, of carrying out that one imperative in a second. But it also does bear mentioning that, um, on the one hand, Immanuel Kant is not going to be a friend of contemporary atheists because um, Kant himself is a bit too, um, what, rigorous and and at the same time open-minded to possibilities. So even though in the case of the cat imperative, he's carrying out the Enlightenment project, I don't think that Kant has convinced himself in his wider writings that you can do morality without God. So for instance, in a book of his called Critique of Pure Judgment, which is generally not the first book that uh, folks read from Kant, They usually start with his critique of pure reason, which is absolutely daunting, um, and and they end up with without enough energy maybe for critique of pure judgment. (laughs) But but the whole reason that Kant's doing all of this is to get down to the ethics business. So when when Kant uh, talks about issues of justice or or or, um, non-formal but concrete stuff in critique of pure judgment, he says. You know, kind of matter-of-factly, well, of course you have to believe in the immortality of the soul because otherwise justice would not be satisfied in this life. Huh. So he, you know, he's not, um, he is not a friend of atheists, which is why a lot of people, um, simply don't care for Immanuel Kant being used seriously in ethical classes or ethical discussions. Now, that said, I think it's also the case that we should mention that Immanuel Kant grew up as a Lutheran. So he grew up as a Lutheran pietist. Um, I know this is going to sound strange. I'm not particularly interested to try to sort out what kind of faith he lived during his adult or mature years um, because my job in this case is to look at his philosophy and, and judge whether it's true and and coherent or not. But... Um, so Immanuel Kant knows all this Bible stuff, and and if we point out that it sounds an awful lot like he's doing some sort of enlightenment paraphrase of the voice of Jesus, that's not a stretch. That's really plausibly what's going on here. In fact, I don't think there's a, another viable explanation for that. No, so here you say that um, the categorical imperative has three ac- uh, aspects. And I'll, I'll, um, we'll just kind of walk through these three aspects and, and take them apart if we can. Sure. Uh, here's the first. Act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So take that one, that first one apart. Act, uh, act according to the maxim whereby at the same time you can will that it should become a universal law. 
Sure. So we're going to provide our um, listeners with the opportunity to get at at some notes that I offered on this, as you mentioned. One of the things that I undertook was some paraphrasing of my own of each of these three iterations or versions of the one categorical imperative. Um, so I just, just want to take a second to say, and that's the way it goes in Kantian studies. Immanuel Kant is, what, such a, a precise philosophical German engineer that um, he is is not just daunting, but I think it's, you know, it's our worst nightmares when we were learning how to read German. His sentences can be so long, and of course you should be able to follow, but not many of us can. If our um, professors, when I was going through the uh, language qualifiers for my philosophy PhD, if they wanted to fail us, the word was that they would have a, a German section from Kant for us to, pair, to uh, translate. You know? So, yeah. um, so the thing is, um, I actually had one, one rare, precious, and um, analogous opportunity to do a paper in Great Britain uh, at the invitation of the, um, the uh, UK Kant Society. And uh, I found out there that even the real Kant scholars, of which I hardly am one, but the real Kant scholars, they always paraphrase him because otherwise nobody knows what's being said. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> So um, here's my paraphrase. You had you had quoted Kant, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. And I'll offer the paraphrase this way. Instead of sitting back and letting your pastor tell you what to do and not do, imagine yourself in God's position. Be sure to act always in line with a moral law that you know to be objective, universal, and intelligible. So, um, I think a, a really good brief introduction to what Kant is doing here, and perhaps in all of his work, is to look up, and it's all over the place online, to look up his little essay, What is Enlightenment? And in there, he actually says in the second paragraph that it's we, we uh, need to grow up. What we generally have is the feeling that we pay people to think for us. And um, one of the types of people that he says we pay to think for us is our pastor. So we let our pastor tell us what we should do and not do, as if, I suppose, uh, when we face God in heaven and he says, why did you do this or why didn't you do that? We get to say, well, because my pastor told me that. Uh, And Kant says, no, no, be a grown-up, right? That's another way of putting the Enlightenment thought except you need to do it not just without your pastor, but without the God of the Bible. Uh. So, yeah, so you have to be serious about it, really serious about it, religiously serious about it, if you will, but you can't accept the pastor's word or, alas, God's word for what these universal laws are. However, you don't get to do whatever you want to do. The rationale, the apologetic, the reasoning behind what you're doing has to be expressible as a universal law. So, uh, and, and those three um, adjectives that you used are pretty important. Objective, universal, 
and intelligible. I, in, assuming that intelligible um, meanings at, at least means that it's accessible by just more than yourself. I mean, you uh, it has to be something that uh, you could defend or argue or that any, you could expect other people also to um, understand and follow. That's exactly right. So um, what I'm doing there is I'm uh, borrowing and amplifying in a slightly different way um, something that I got from Joseph Katursky at Fordham University. He's a a very gifted speaker on the matter of natural law. And um, Katursky says that before something can count as an ethical theory, it should be, I think I remember right, that he says it should be universal and objective and intelligible. I just switched those words around so I could do a mnemonic with that. Is this an ethical theory, a genuine ethical theory we're considering? We, it is. So only if it's objective universal and intelligible that's one criterion it's not two out of three or something it's, ah. that's the criterion so if we we're going to promote it. something as an ethical theory it has to be objective uh, as in not agenda driven and not self-serving and universal is a check on that so it would apply to men and women young and old everybody of whatever socioeconomic group whatever place in history and and so forth and then the intelligible part, I really appreciated the way um, you expressed that. I, I tend to think a little bit more in terms of the classroom or where, you know, we have to defend this stuff out in the public sphere. And so I'd say intelligible means that you have to be able to stand questions and objections and explain and show and exhibit why this is uh, reasonable, i.e., objective and universal for everyone. The, uh, the, now we can maybe just pause here and point out that uh, um, Kant is standing in complete opposition, even at this first uh, part of the categorical imperative, first statement here, uh, against anything uh, that we would consider to be relativ- relativistic or or any sort of relativism. That there's a right for you and a right for me, but that might not be the same. Uh, this stands smack in the uh, in opposition to that. It sure does. Um, if I were if I were looking for a fighter to get you um, to receive a lot of of flaming emails on the topic, I'd I'd say what I'm about to say, and that is, there really is no first tier philosopher up until the very recent period in in Western culture who was a relativist. Hmm. Um, that that's more meant for discussion. You can start talking with Nietzsche about that. Um, you've got a big dodge that's kind of available to me in the 20th century. We don't know who the greats from from that century are going to turn out to be because we haven't had enough time to test them out and and test drive 20th century philosophy. But um, I offered the thesis when we started our master metaphor study that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle founded Western philosophy to combat postmodern relativism. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they saw this in Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. And these guys argued with might and main how that cannot be the case. And on pain of um, social destruction, we can never accept that to be the case. Yeah. Uh, I, I've always thought that the strength of relativism is not uh, – and it can't be in any, any sort of rational or, or intellectual defense of the thing, but just because it's easy. I mean, hey, I can do what I want. Uh, yeah, right. So, yeah. Well, so we, so we have to use sarcasm to respond to that. <laughs> that, that would be um, a quote you and I have talked about before from Roger Scruton, a contemporary British, now American philosopher. If 
a professor tells you there's no such thing as truth or that all truth is relative, he's telling you not to listen to him. So don't. <laughs> it's self-refuting. Right. Uh, the second point for the categorical comparative is this, uh, these words, quote, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of another, always at the same time as an end and never simply as a means. Yeah, so my paraphrase of that, Brian, is as a rational human being yourself, never degrade other human beings or yourself by treating any human being as merely a means to an end. Now, I've, I've got a painful illustration for this one. Um, I don't know what percentage of our listeners had uh, wonderful, angst-free high school experiences, but for most of us, um, those years of high school, for all the wonderful things that, that uh, the Lord may have been doing for us, there were also times that were fraught with um, horrible happenings, such as um, uh, the social dating and stuff that just went badly off the rails. I think that Immanuel Kant, <laughs> who was a dyed-in-the-wool bachelor and never married, I think he would be of great help to high schoolers who are getting set to date because he points out that you should never, ever, ever use another person as a means to an end or even use yourself or allow yourself to be used as a means to an end, which is to say, um, you know, if the guy is saying to you, yes, you're my seventh choice for inviting to homecoming, but I don't want to go without a date, um, that's using somebody as a means to an end, and you probably shouldn't say yes. Also, if you do say yes, um, speaking to the women under that circumstances, um, maybe you're treating yourself as kind of a means to an end instead of an end in yourself. Hmm. Now, now, what uh, what I want to know is why. I mean, why does um, or maybe not why? Uh, let, let me ask a different question. How can Kant say this? How, how does he come to the thought that? Um, that that we human beings have such a dignity that we cannot be used as tools, but rather have to be um, uh, th that we give each other enough respect that we we are treating each other as an end. Right. So maybe this is a spot where our listeners would want to test out whether I'm being uh, thoroughly fair with Kant by saying that he's always and. Uh, determinedly pursuing that enlightenment project of doing ethics, but utterly without the God of the Bible. Because actually the basis for this kind of thinking in Western culture would be the biblical content. So if, if we consider culture, I'm following Roger Scruton here again, by the way. Uh, he's got a book called Culture Counts, which is brief and extremely helpful on this. Um, say, let's say that culture is shared forms of judgments regarding the good, the beautiful, and the true. Or for short, uh, culture is shared forms of judgment regarding the, mo the moral norms. Now, Western culture then would be that, shared judgments regarding the good, the beautiful, and the true, done according to Greek forms of thinking, and with Judeo-Christian, that's biblical, 
content. So whether he means to do it or not, and I really find it hard ever to imagine Kant not doing things deliberately, um, what he's actually doing is he is relying on an understanding of the human being that did not come from Aristotle but came from the Trinitarian controversies in the early A.D. centuries of Western civilization. So um, the notion that we know today as human rights and indeed the term that we're taught to use in <coughs> ethics classes to talk about the bearer of moral rights, person, that's actually a term that was hammered out and put into the Western bloodstream um, in in the stuff surrounding Nicaea, Chalcedon formulation, and the Trinitarian business. So God is one divinity, but three, and there comes the word person that the fathers used. So whether he meant oh, to wow. do it or not, if there is a basis for respecting the dignity and the worth of all human beings as persons, it's that we're created in God's image, it's that we've been redeemed by God by virtue of, get this, God becoming a human being. If Kant's not relying on that, and I, I think here he's actually not, if push comes to shove, if he's not relying on that, he wants to have that stuff, but he's trying to um, Velcro it to human rationality, gotcha. thinking that you know, we would look around and see what a unique and wonderful kind of being human beings are. We're rational, and therefore we are going to treat each other with dignity because we can think that through. And there I would say that, that Kant is just an optimist, and and it is not good to be an optimist in philosophy. <laughs> well, because, I mean, this this question of human dignity, We so we uh, Christians look at our, our brothers and sisters, uh, humans, and we say, well, we're created by God's, in, in God's image. We've fallen and lost the image of God, and yet that original creative dignity remains, and it's even amplified by the fact that Jesus has become our brother and that humanity, all people, believer and unbeliever, have the promise of being raised up out of the dead, out of the grave, and this gives us kind of the basis for human dignity. Um, I think I'm so used to our kind of evolutionary ethic these days, which sees people without dignity and therefore precisely as an ends to a means uh, to, uh, uh, that, that, that Kant would, um, at least at this point, that humanity becomes an end. The dignity of each person requires them to be an end of my action, not a means for my action, has been completely lost in our day. Um, apart from the, uh, biblical ethics. And so I think it makes sense that he's kind of skating on the the Christian capital of the Western world when he comes to this one, at least. Well, sure. Um, also, can I just say this would be a topic for another series. Um, maybe we should be doing something on ethics. No, I've said that on air. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I, I seriously doubt um, I'm just going to set aside my pastor's cap for a second and say, as as a philosopher and a professor of philosophy, I serious, seriously doubt and question whether there is such a thing as an evolutionary ethic. And that's because in large part of the criterion that we talked about before, that um, ethics is a normative discipline, if it's anything, and if it's if you're going to be offering us an ethical theory 
before it gets in the door and before we're going to take up our time with it, your theory has to be objective, universal, and intelligible all at once. All right. of those things. Right. Yep. Yeah. So then, then you know, what we've got is a very interesting question here, especially for the, um, you know, the seekers or the visitors or the skeptics that may be listening into what's essentially sounding like an in-house conversation here. And that is, um, who would you rather have as a neighbor? A, a person with a Christian worldview that is somebody who believes that when they look at you and your spouse and your children, that they are looking at people who have been created especially by God and whose very existence has been under God's caretaking, who know that God gave his only begotten son to redeem all human beings and that understand in the the depths of our heart and soul and being that human beings, all of them, every single one, regardless of age or ability or disability, is of the same species as God because of the incarnation. Um, would you rather have a Christian as a neighbor or would you rather have a committed enlightenment denier of the God of the Bible? Would you rather have a philosophical atheist or would you rather have a Bible-believing disciple of Christ? Um, that seems like a – I mean, it's a good question. It seems pretty obvious to me. I mean, the, the, this idea of human dignity is pretty important. Um, it's, it's a driver here. Uh, and if and if all I mean if there's no dignity or if our dignity is completely based on the fact like you said uh, would under uh, sit under Kant here is that I I'm rational and therefore I have a dignity um, that that's just not enough it's not enough to hold it together um, yeah and and in some discussions I I'd, I'd like to pose the question why isn't it enough to hold it together um, because you know it seems to work. <laughs> it seems to work for an hour or two or three hours in a university classroom. But, of course, you're talking from our experience out in the big wide world where not everybody feels they have to follow academic requirements to talk respectfully and give reasons and and uh, be kind to each other. So you're importantly correct. And I, I would just have this up by saying I think the reason that Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative worked for him and may indeed have worked for quite a while after his death is because that most of his neighbors were committed Christians, <laughs> and, right? Yep. The categorical imperative will work, sort of, it'll work, um, as long as you've got the exact stuff that Kant was in the business of scrubbing out of it. That, that reminds me of a quote. Uh, C.F.W. Walter, the president, the first president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, was, wrote a little pamphlet on con- communism, and a, f- a friend, a brother pastor, sent me a note from him, and he says, the only way that communism could possibly work is if everybody in the, in the whole system is a Christian. And the problem is that communism requires that nobody in the system can be a Christian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it works either. Here's the third point. For, uh, even if you have all Christians, I'm not sure if it works. But anyway, here's the third uh, point to the categorical imperative. Um, Kant writes this, quote, A rational being belongs to the kingdom of ends as a member. When he legislates it in universal laws, while also being himself subject to these laws. He belongs to it as a sovereign when as legislature he himself 
He is himself subject to the will of no other. So the paraphrase I'd offer of that is something like this. Um, We exhibit our ethics in our actual moral practices. So the question is, are you taking your autonomous being seriously? I think Kant would say. That is, are you both a dutiful lawmaker and a dutiful law follower? Now, my example for that would be the U.S. Congress. So um, I, I have no way of explaining this. I'm certainly not interested in defending it. I understand that the U.S. Congress um, can make laws while at the same time itself being exempt from those laws or aspects of those laws. <laughs> if that's the case, um, this is a very bad way to make laws. Also, this is a very bad way to teach your children or the people back home why it's important to be um, a participating citizen in a country under law. Um, so Kant is saying, um, you know, keep serious about all of this. You have to pr- be able to produce a universal law as the reason for doing or not doing uh, what you're doing ethically. And then let me remind you that you also have to be producing that law and folks following that law as well. Um, that's regarded, I suppose, as a, a test of um, rational integrity or something. This uh, this word autonomy uh, you've introduced here, which I think is maybe going to be the key word for this whole conversation. It comes from auto uh, and nomos, two Greek words. Um, although I don't I, I don't know if they were t- together in the ancient world or if we've put them together recently. That it means a law to yourself. So you are your own lawgiver. Does that? Do you know if the word has ancient pedigree, um, and why is it important in this context? Yeah, the parts of the composite sure do, because we memorize those as as separate Greek words. I can't actually speak with any authority to whether it popped up, but it doesn't really get used until the Enlightenment. And Immanuel Kant is the one who did this. So um, we haven't talked about it, and it's probably better that we don't on a first brief look at the cat imperative. But Immanuel Kant really privileges the human will, even though he's talking a great deal about human rationality for the categorical imperative. Um, I think, by the way, that's probably part of his Lutheran sensibility to look at the will and not, not just or exclusively or mostly at the rational component. But you had asked about (laughs) autonomy. So, um, in the excerpts that uh, we provided for our folks, um, on your website, the last or second last paragraph from the Kantian excerpt in Grounding says this. The legislation itself, however, which determines all worth, remember you were asking about the dignity and worth of the human being, mm-hmm. must precisely for this reason have a dignity. That is, an unconditioned, incomparable worth. The word respect alone yields a becoming expression for the estimation that a rational being must assign to it. Autonomy is thus the ground of the dignity of the human and of every rational creature. Now, let's see if we can first be sure to understand and and fairly appropriate, honestly appropriate, what Kant is saying by that. And then I'd like to offer a real brief criticism. So, um, my suggestion is that the notion of autonomy being self-legislating or just to use the word being autonomous exists on a spectrum. Um, over at one side, let's just say the far left, you could have what you might call healthy autonomy 
And then over at the far right, as you might picture this on a whiteboard or something, you'd have um, what I call radicalized autonomy, right? So autonomy could be a good, healthy thing in the sense that Kant actually does talk about in what is enlightenment. Um, we, we would like um, to be sure that we are autonomous in the sense that we, for instance, take responsibility as adults for our own health care, right? I, right? I shouldn't, even though I, I do slip, I, I should not have to wait for my doctor to tell me that either my weight or my numbers or something aren't what they should be and, and you have to do something. I should be on top of that enough to know that I should be doing something before it comes to my doctor telling me that. Right. Uh, right. And also, as I, I like to remind the undergraduates, speaking on behalf of your parents, we also are all looking forward to the day when you will move out of the house. Um, yeah. Because, not because we don't love you, and we do love these kids, but it's because we need them to become, um, well, autonomous, contributing citizens and members of the church and so forth. Now, um, autonomy, you know, being a law unto yourself can also be radicalized. So you can also get so dismissive of anybody telling you or presuming to tell you or suggesting that there's somebody to tell you what you ought to do that, that you get very hard-nosed and very egocentric um, about your ethics such as it is. So then you end up with, in my view, uh, people like Ayn Rand who say, why can't I do what I want to do? A strong-willed person should always be able to do whatever a strong-willed person wants to do. Um, all claims to the contrary, I don't see how you can view that as an ethical theory. That's an anarchic assertion, right? Or it's a will-to-power sort of thing because there's no intelligibility to that, and it's not universal. It's a, it's that sort of thing. So where does radicalized autonomy hit us and harm us today? Physician-assisted suicide. Huh. Um, so, so that would be because I because I want to be able to control my own death. I don't want to have. So, so I'm going to be a lot of my. I'm going to determine uh, how my own incomes, and that is a an expression of my autonomous will. I, no one else can tell me how to die, when to die, etc. That's exactly right. So, um, in part, I'd want to say that the way that whole discussion is cast is just diabolically clever. It's all set up on the basis of what we would recognize in a logic class as being a black and white fallacy, where you ask the question, am I in control of my own life or not? And anything that suggests that a person can't do whatever she wants to do whenever she wants to do it, and for whatever reason she wants to do it, um, the accusation is going to be, so I can't, I can't have any control over my own life. Um, so the question is tyranny or autonomy. Black and white, you got to pick one or you pick the... Oh, you boy. See? Yep. And that, that just really boxes the whole discussion in. When actually the conversation's entirely on the wrong wavelength, um, it sure would be a question of autonomy if the doctor was making up their mind in your place, like the doctors in Holland are doing even for... Uh, people who never would ask for physician-assisted suicide today. The doctors determine all on their own that, you know, the person should, should die. They would not want to live. Maybe they're Catholic. 
I, I read about this case recently. Maybe they're Roman Catholic, and so because of their religion, they could never ask for physician-assisted suicide. Oh, boy. Of course, everyone should have that freedom, so I will prescribe it for her. Boom. Um, this is So this is radicalized autonomy because, first of all, um, the only thing that counts in here is totally non-moral or immoral, and that's the assertion of a desire to do whatever I want to do and the heck with anything else, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, what we would like to say to the, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm very sorry that her name got into the news because I, I hate the thought of our daughters having to have their um, terminal diseases or anything else played out on the internet or on the evening news, but uh, Brittany Maynard a while ago, right? Right. So, um, while, while your heart is broken over what's happening, it, it really never is the case that there's anything per se good in somebody wanting to die before something that might happen has begun to happen. There, there's no conversation really in there about the good, the love, the care for the individual. And, um, you know, Lord have mercy, we've developed an attitude of deciding when people's lives are worth living when our vocation as neighbors and fellow human beings is surely to care for people in whatever life they are living. Right. Right. So um, autonomy is a, a oh, just a, a, a dreadful source of poisoning the thinking and the discussion. Uh, but technically, I would say it's that radicalized autonomy. Of course, it started off as not wanting to have heteronomy, somebody else making the law. And that's, you know, kind of like the early Boy Scout literature. The commandments of the Boy Scouts are positive versus the commands of God, which, well, well, are thou shalt and thou shalt not. <laughs> yeah. Now, this um, this autonomy, so Kant is going to say this autonomy is going to be the foundation for the dignity of human beings. May I say I'm not sure about that. It has played out that way. Or perhaps Kant has been co-opted that way. Or perhaps um, the seeds of that are there every time you try to do this with Christ amputated out of the business. Right, because then it can't be a suffering for the neighbor. So then you have to, um, then you have to plug in something else. So I could say I could be autonomous and driven to love my neighbor, which means I would stay alive to care for them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when God is removed, then the, the idea of the good life or pleasure or whatever enters in. So now my law is bent towards. Not feeling pain or not suffering or not losing control or not doing what I want my future to be or whatever it is. And now that autonomy takes a wicked turn. Yeah. And may, may I just say it? It's, um, it's not so much that autonomy or radicalized autonomy is one option among many, but, um, the mainstream, almost the exclusive approach in bioethics today replaces the good of the human being genuine, lasting, and eternal happiness for the human being, uh, the common good for our neighbors, replaces all of that with radicalized autonomy, with some very rare exceptions. So um, my friend and colleague uh, at Concordia in Wisconsin, that's Dr. Kevin Voss, is working with Might and Maine to get some bioethics back on the track. Um, but 
my diagnosis is that everything has gone radicalized autonomous and we can't you know we, we think it's some sort of assault on american freedom or or something to tell somebody well no we're not going to help you kill yourself because that's not what we're here for we're here to care for you and to pray with you and um you know to show you in christ um how meaningful your life including your life of um, bearing a cross of disability or suffering how very valuable that is it's actually echoing god himself I think I want to uh, head to in this direction as we kind of wind up our conversation because one of the things that Kant will do is he'll contrast um, the categorical imperative with the golden rule or he'll at least make a distinction between the two. And I'll read the words. Let one not think that the trivial quod tibi non vis feri, etc., which means do not do what you don't want to be done to yourself, um, could serve here as a standard or principle. For it is only derived from that principle through which very, uh, through with various limitations, it cannot be a universal law. For it does not contain the ground of duties toward oneself, nor that of the duties of love toward others. For many would gladly acquiesce that others should not uh, be beneficent to them, if only he might be relieved from showing beneficence to them, or finally have owed duties to one another. For the criminal would argue on this ground against the judge who punishes him, etc. Uh, what about this? So Kant's critique of the do unto others what you would have them do unto you or the negative, don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Well, let's, um, let's be kind of demanding here. I know it's not, it's not fashionable in the academic circles where I work for this, but I really think that, um, as I've suggested in one or two of our other conversations, that people should not be using Bible passages if they're not really reading the Bible carefully. So, um, actually, what what um, what happens is that our Lord's so-called golden rule, and we want to remind ourselves that wasn't a phrase we came up with in the church. Um, that so-called golden rule is lifted out of its biblical and um, biblical context and is snatched out of the mouth of Jesus as if it's it's just kind of out there abstractly. And then people say all sorts of things about it. So, um, first of all, the, the actual formulation that Kant was using in what you just mentioned isn't the golden rule. It's the silver rule. So, <laughs> this is, you know, this is the way we talk about Confucian versions of this sort of thing or um, things outside of, of Western kith and kin there are things that sound like second-hand echoes of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, but it's put the other way, and it I think it ends up looking very different, right? So if the command is, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, that really is not of the same caliber as do unto others, as you would have them do unto you from the mouth of Jesus, who is doing unto others by going to the cross, so um, the, the thing then is that, that Kant does not succeed in giving us the golden rule on his rational and autonomous grounds. Surely one of the big liabilities, his uh, uh, huge Achilles heel on this, is his dismissal of human emotions, including love. 
right? So mm. Jesus Jesus didn't offer this as some sort of Gnostic paradigm or some sort of uh, Stoic mantra when he said, do unto others. Uh, Jesus is the God who is love, and we're not being metaphorical either. He, in some some absolutely profound metaphysical beyond our understanding and fathoming way, Jesus is love. If you don't get that from his laying down his life for all of us only to take it up again, you don't know what love is, I think. So um, it, the, the upshot is that Kant is skating on a Christian and indeed a biblical understanding of our duty, but he's giving an abstract, philosophized version of it that only satisfies as long as you've got mostly Christian and biblical people listening to it. Mm. Right? So mm-hmm. it sounds like we've done rationally uh, something important and you don't need the Bible now. But of course, that was the whole problem in, in, in my non-historian's view. That's the whole problem with modernity. The Christians fell down on the job and thought you can just be smart or you can carry the weight of culture and you don't have to use the means of grace. Hmm. Um, so, and the, you know, so that's what happens. And then I, I just want to slide this in and, and then leave the conclusion or the next question totally up to you. So Kant's um, ethic is often referred to as an ethic of deontology, grabbing a fairly obscure Greek word, for duty-driven. After Kant, in the 19th century, Sven Kierkegaard, a bona fide Lutheran thinker, um, says, you know, that actually the um, Kantian stuff, I'm paraphrasing and elaborating a little bit, but actually the Kantian stuff that talks about duty is a washed-out version of seeking to do the will of God. Because the... I think the obvious question when you think about it is, if I'm supposed to do my duty, to whom am I obliged to do my duty? (laughs) Right. So a military military person could help us out on this, and they would say, well, you know, your duty is, certainly to the Constitution and and, uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, but your duty is fundamentally to the guy next to you, right, To to your comrade in arms. And here's the thing. Kant went so abstract that he went abstract beyond the reach of duty. You can't do duty to an abstract principle. You have to do duty to a person. And I I would say furthermore, to a person who is worthy of your loyalty and your followership. Uh, Somebody who is worthy of having you as a disciple. (laughs) <laughs> so, so the so Kant's abstraction it com- it completely undoes the law uh, because there's no God to be served, uh, worthy to be served in the law, and then it completely undoes the gospel because we see in the gospel that this law that we could not k- keep is kept for us, and that the God who gave the law is punished under the law to set us free from the law, and that's the gospel of Christ, uh, which there's no place for anything joyful or good or beautiful uh, in, or, or, uh, or true uh, without, that, uh, without that teaching from the Scripture. This is, oh, Master Metaphors. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with Dr. Schulz, and that's Kant, the categorical imperative. How about that? Uh, Dr. Schultz, you want to set the table for us for next week? 
Sure. I see you're still talking about the table, though Barclay was yeah. last week. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so next, next up is Friedrich Nietzsche. You may be very surprised at a Lutheran philosopher bringing up Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, but we're actually going to be looking at his writing, The Joyful Science, and his master metaphor of the madman. <laughs> That's the guy that comes to town yelling, God is dead. And the people say, what are you talking about? And then he says, you're not ready and leaves. That's the one? That's the one, except he's looking for God. He didn't, you know, he says God is dead, but we haven't dealt with it. <laughs> we'll take that up next week. Thanks for listening. Oh, and all the papers, um, essays, the text of Kant and all these other things are located on the website, uh, org. Click on the articles, Master Metaphors page, the Kant article, and you'll find it all there. Uh, leave some comments and uh, and let us know. Keep in touch with us. And Dr. Schulz, thanks again uh, for this great conversation. Uh, Pastor, thank you. Perfect. That's great. I think we're getting better and better at this, by the way. Yeah, at least we think so. Yeah. <laughs> that's very good. Well, here's, I, oh, here's yeah. the danger. Here's the danger that's creeping in for me. It feels like um, we are just two Lutheran pastors uh, talking on the same frequency in the same room. And I, I've got to remember that all sorts of people can pick this up and do things with it. So... Um, that doesn't bother me terribly, but I just notice I'm getting a little too comfortable with you. <laughs> it doesn't bother me <laughs> at all. That's all I ever do. So uh, I'm supposed to be a Lutheran pastor, though. You're the one supposed to be a philosopher. <laughs> so no, so no, no risk on my end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you again. This is fantastic. I'll try to get it posted up here in the next couple of days, and I'll send you an email too. I haven't done that last couple of weeks, but I'll send you an email when that gets uh, posted up. So, well, I'll look forward to that. And um, we're heading down to Holy Week almost before we know it. I think um, I think Searle's Chinese Room, maybe Wittgenstein hits that. If you uh, if you need to devote your your thinking and heart to things going on during Passion Week, feel free to adjust. Uh, but I should be in a position where I can keep things up if that's what you want to do. Okay. I will see. Um, let's see. Uh, that would be in two weeks on the 21st. I think I'll probably – I'm looking at it. I think I'll probably be fine. But okay. if when it gets closer, I'll let you know. It might be the um, – no, no. I think uh, – uh, well, I'll let you know when we get closer. So. Yeah, feel free. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Sure.